Galatians chapter 2, Paul's epistle, verse 15, we'll read through verse 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's holy word for us today. And we will turn now to page 881 in the back of our Psalter hymnal to read responsively um, the three questions of Lord's Day 23. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, And of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift With a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. Well, that's our catechism lesson today, and question 60 is one of the 10 questions and answers that we ask children to memorize as they come forward for profession of faith. The doctrine of justification is very important in our understanding of the church, and we'll be looking at that today. It was not too long ago, in 2017, that we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther um, and his um, his uh, 95 theses, which he, he posted to kick off a debate. He had no idea how massive a debate would kick off. Now, a half a millennium, 500 years, is a really long time. But um, 
This is an idea, though uh, not only 500 years old, but biblical idea that is still very present and important to us today. The doctrine of justification, one of the the central issues around Luther's uh, debate and reform of the church, uh, the justification of a sinner before a holy God, uh, founded in Scripture, in the reading of our text today, Galatians and elsewhere in the Old and New Testament, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, um, still resonates with us today. Still resonates with us today. And these next six questions in our catechism, this week and next, summarize this teaching in a very beautiful and clear fashion. Um, This doctrine, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, um, was called, is often called, the doctrine of a standing or falling church. If the doctrine of justification is not at the heart of the gospel we preach, we're not really a church. We're an organization that doesn't teach salvation through faith in Christ, but teaches uh, good works, teaches a lifestyle. We're not preaching Christ and Him crucified if we don't grasp and understand this doctrine at the heart of the New Testament. And that's how Paul, of course, uh, kicks off uh, the book of Galatians, right? He, he talks about those who have abandoned the gospel that he was preached. They deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He said there is no other gospel. And no matter who should appear to you, even an angel from heaven, let them be accursed if they depart from this gospel. And that's why it's viewed to be so precious to the life and the health of the church. After the conclusion of our creed, that's where we're at in this section of the catechism. We've gone through the Apostles' Creed, uh, the content, as it were, of our faith. The catechism asks, how does it help you now that you believe all this? Tying the content of our Christian doctrine, the ABCs of the Christian faith, in with that opening question of our catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? What help is this knowledge, is this faith? Doctrine is not something believed for its own sake. It terminates in our confidence and hope in Christ. So what? What is faith for? How does it work? What does it do? The creeds, the the summary part of the, the second part of the catechism, what God has done to deliver me from my sin and misery, focused around the work of the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is good news. It is an objective account of things that happened in history. God's work of creation, the incarnation of the Son, uh, His life, death, and resurrection, and ascension to glory. The Holy Spirit calling and gathering the New Testament church through faith in Christ. But this good news, this message of salvation, Christ crucified, must be received by us, appropriated. And that's what the rest of this part of the catechism on deliverance is about. Questions 59 through 85, uh, there's a good section here on our deliverance that isn't just what has happened in history, but what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, in our hearts today. And it starts with this doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's the foundation. But then we see that also through the church and the sacraments, questions 65 through 82, these are means of this grace by which we are united to Christ and our faith is confirmed and strengthened. And finally, preaching and discipline, the keys of the kingdom of Christ are taught as well. 
So we see here that, that the church in its activity, the Holy Spirit in and through the church, applies the good news of Jesus Christ to sinners, to us, by creating faith in our hearts, confirming it and strengthening us and uniting us to Christ. So what? How does this help us? The catechism says, you are righteous, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Your faith unites you to Christ. You are buried with him in your baptism. You are raised with him in his resurrection. So your righteousness, your holiness, your standing before God is in Christ. It's not in yourself. You're an heir to life everlasting. Question 60 explains this in a way that we should all take deeply to heart. It's worth memorizing, even for adults in our congregation. And it really answers the question, why the Reformation? So that this biblical teaching could shine brightly out. The Reformation is necessary because this doctrine, though it's the best news a sinner could ever hear, this doctrine is also a stumbling block. This doctrine offends our sensibility, our self-worth. We can't save ourselves. We are, cried, we are called to humble ourselves, to empty ourselves, to cling to Christ alone. The church, the medieval church, even the churches of the Reformation, is ever struggling to hold and preserve this teaching clearly, fighting against it. It's easy, all too easy for us to abandon this comfort and ask the poor sinner, what have, what have you done for God lately? Seek to justify ourselves. Churches are always, it seems, trying to get their people to do something. Which is not a bad thing. We'll get to the part of the, the catechism about our sanctification and good works. The problem is when we confuse that and make it the, salve, the foundation of our salvation, not the fruit and result of it. So rarely, almost never, does any Christian church come out and deny that we are saved by faith in Christ. But it's much more difficult to hold on to this clear doctrine that we are saved by faith alone. I want to begin uh, by unpacking in a little bit more detail uh, this passage uh, we read by Galatians. Uh, This is not the only place in the scriptures uh, where this doctrine is taught, but it is a particularly uh, clear place. Paul begins by saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know. That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He opens by making that contrast between Jews and Gentiles. He says, we're Jews. We had the law of God. We had it for over a thousand years. In all of its glorious detail. And yet never, never, never. Not even when Moses was coming down from the mountain with the law. Could God's people save themselves by following it. This law didn't save them. It couldn't save them. Not because the law is weak and powerless, but because sinners are weak and powerless. The purpose of the law was never to justify God's people. It was to teach sinners the character, the nature of the righteousness they needed to stand before a holy God, to get them to flee To Yahweh, who forgives sin and is merciful and gracious. Yes, the law is for doing. The law is for obeying. But sinners can't do it. 
Our sin nature is an an immovable stumbling block. It doesn't justify. It doesn't give life. Paul also teaches this clearly in Romans 3. Now we know, he concludes after that opening section of chapters 1 and 2, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, both Jew and Gentile, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law holds us accountable. Do this and you will live. For by the works of the law, Paul writes, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't given to us to justify us. Paul repeats himself here in Galatians for the sake of clarity and emphasis. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. He says the same thing twice. He's emphasizing uh, this teaching. Three times in these two verses, four times in this whole section, Paul talks about justification. And he's pounding it home that it is not our obedience to the law. Ceremonial, moral, any part of God's law. It all condemns us. Christ justifies sinners. That doesn't make him a servant of sin. He's not encouraging us to sin. He's coming to us in our sin. And declaring us righteous. The law no longer has the last word for the Christian. The law still calls us sinners. It still describes our sin. It still describes the just penalty for that sin. But by faith in Christ, we know that we are no longer condemned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans 4, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, if you go to work, you clock punch in and you get your hours, you're due. You deserve something. And he says, to the one who does not work, but believes. So faith is the opposite of working. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the wicked. Justification here is a verdict, the declaration of not guilty. He gets off the hook, sinners. This is why the catechism says, I am righteous in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life of Christ is in me by faith. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My righteousness resides in Christ. And the Reformation in Luther and his debates with the church over how we we came to possess or access or share in the righteousness of Christ. Luther emphasizes that this is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is not proper to us. We don't generate it. We don't make it. We don't deserve it. It's outside of us. But we are, as it were, connected to it. It is granted to us and credited to us. Again, in the language of our catechism. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says there's no reason for Jesus to die if we can be justified by law-keeping. He died because that 
was the only way. He died to sin for us. He died for our sins, Paul is saying. We exchange our sin and guilt for his righteousness. And if you believe that you're saved by your obedience in the slightest part that you contribute, then Christ's death is unnecessary. So question 60 in our catechism is teaching this same message from the Apostle Paul right to us. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. These three phrases describe our sinful hearts. Sinned against all of God's commandments, never having kept any of them, still being inclined toward all evil. Without any merit of my own, sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That phrase will be repeated in the next question as well, 61. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. When God looks at the believer, the one who believes in Jesus Christ, he sees the perfect son, an obedient son. The satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept with a believing heart. The obedience of Christ is credited to us. Not only are our sins washed away, but his holiness becomes ours. Kevin DeYoung, in his uh, wonderful little cate- um, commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, the good news we almost forgot, says that there are, are five key ingredients of the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. And all five of them come into play here. And the first ingredient he identifies is, is the idea that we are simultaneously sinners and saints by faith in Christ. We remain, in fact, sinful, inclined toward all evil, while God, by his declaration and credit and imputation, gives to our account the holiness of Christ. It's not describing me before I was converted. Like, I used to be inclined toward all evil, but now, you know, it's cool. I'm, I'm, that doesn't bother me anymore. I'm just inclined toward all good. That's me today. That's me as a sinner looking to Christ alone. That's how I feel when I go to bed at night, when I replay my day and how well I've done, how faithful I've been. And in Christ, I can say, when Satan accuses me of being a sinner, you know what? You're right. But I stand by faith in Jesus. That's not the basis of my justification. Thanks be to God. So this idea that Luther trumpeted so much in his teaching, that we are simultaneously sinners and saints. Which offends many, uh, but is a clear and true biblical teaching. The second one I've already mentioned, the second ingredient, that this is an alien righteousness. Again, our catechism says, nevertheless, all of these things are true about me and my sin. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, nothing but grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. It's perfect because I haven't mucked it up. It's perfect because it's alien. If, it, if I only was able to receive that which I could access and, and make my own, we would mess it up. 
But we don't because we can't. It's perfect in Christ. It must be and remain outside of me. If it was Christ's righteousness in you, your sin would pollute it. And the third ingredient of this doctrine is this idea of imputation. I've hinted at it a few times this morning. It's in our uh, catechism clearly. This language of granting and crediting. It's as if you won a lottery and you pulled up your bank account on the app on your phone and there was a million dollars credited to your account. But this isn't money. This is Christ's righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction. And this idea of of receiving something that's not my own, something that I didn't create or deserve or earn or merit, being granted to me by gift, is in contrast to the teaching of the church through the Middle Ages, which was that we had to make Christ's righteousness our own through a cooperative, willing act. This was the idea of infusion versus imputation. It is like if you, uh, you know, again, to take up Paul's metaphor of working for a wage, like you check in every day and you get a few drips of righteousness if you're doing your job, if you're taking part, if you're cooperating sufficiently. The idea of infusion is, I always think of putting a a bag of, of black tea in a, Uh, in a clear glass mug and you see the dark color begin to infuse the clear water that through a life of obedience through sacramental fidelity through uh, works of charity that I actually become righteous like Christ and in this way of thinking the important act of justification comes at the end of a life of transformation and infusion and holiness. I am then justified on the basis of how holy I have actually become. So this is a denial of the idea of being simultaneously a sinner and saint. It says we must actually be saints, in fact. And so we say, no, it is the crediting, the granting of Christ's righteousness. The fourth of these five ingredients of this doctrine of justification by faith alone is faith alone. The catechism says, if only, if I just accept this gift with a bleeding heart. Yes, it's good news. It's too good to be true, but it is true. Faith is not some heroic confidence. It's not a boldness of action. It's, It's not a work, doing things faithfully. All of those things might follow from saving faith. But saving faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. You know what Christ has done to save sinners. And you put your confidence in that, not in yourself. It is the accepting of a gift and acknowledging your need for it. And fifth and finally of these five ingredients uh, that de Young identifies here is that faith is an instrumental cause. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that faith doesn't itself contribute anything to this righteousness. It's just a receptacle that receives it. If you think of the the linkages on a train, faith is that instrument which connects us to Christ Jesus, who is the engine pulling us in the life, the Christian life and justification. Question 61 gets at this by re-asking the same question. Not only how are you righteous before God, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, but it asks again, why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? You see, our catechism is driving home this distinctive point. 
Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. My faith has no value in itself. It's just the linking, the instrument that makes me a participant of Christ. It's Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness that become mine. And I receive this by nothing else than faith alone. Faith is an empty vessel. All we bring is our sin, our empty hands, our need. His work is finished. It is complete, perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. You can't add to it. And faith doesn't add to it. It receives it. The great benefit of this doctrine, brothers and sisters, is that this alone silences our guilty conscience. This alone gives us peace with God. Many leading evangelical sinners, in fact, one of the discussions I had this last week with some other pastors on my trip was about uh, even people such as John Piper who come along and, and redefine saving faith. So, well, surely it has to have something we add to it, some affection, some enjoyment, some pleasure. This is under the influence, perhaps, of Jonathan Edwards, who is not at his strongest talking about the religious affections. The problem with Piper and others who want to add something that we must contribute to our faith is when can you ever know that it is enough? When are your affections strong enough? When is your love of Christ pure enough to deserve sharing in all of his perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness? This doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone is a unique message among all world religions. All world religions hold forth a path of holiness, a way of living in the world. Do this. Christianity says, your Savior, Jesus Christ, has done this for you. Receive now his perfect work. And indeed, one of the primary objections, which we'll get to uh, in next week's lesson, really, but it's worth looking forward. uh, Why would anyone oppose this? Well, the objection is holiness. What is our motivation for good works? How and why do our good works matter to the Christian life? And the catechism cares a great deal about that. The last third of the catechism will be about the law of God, about the importance of good works and prayer in the Christian life. Good works matter and they're necessary, but they're necessary as a result, as a fruit of the doctrine of justification. I'll close with the parable of Luke chapter 18, which addresses one objection. Well, this is just a doctrine of the Apostle Paul. Jesus didn't really care about justification by faith alone. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus closes the parable by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, humble yourself this day. Trust again anew in Christ Jesus alone and be comforted that all of his perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness is your own through faith alone. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we know all too well our own sins. We know our failures of this last week, of this last day. We know how we are in love with the world and things of the flesh. We know how we are selfish. We know how we are weak to temptation. We thank you that your son is a perfect son, an obedient son. That he has run the race. And that he has made available to us his perfect obedience. We thank you for granting and crediting this to us by faith alone. And we pray that we might go forth from here, dear Lord, new creatures, new creation, transformed by your grace and mercy, living lives which bring glory to you and to your holy name for the good of our neighbor and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.